Well, you're looking good today, Grace Fellowship. I just welcome everyone who's joining us at Latham, at Half Moon, at Saratoga. We're one church family meeting in different locations, and so many of you are online today. We're glad that all of you are connected in this moment to what God is doing and to what he's about to teach us uh, by his spirit through, through his word. Well, last week, we saw that Jesus dropped a bombshell on his disciples. Could we look at it again? What he said in Matthew's gospel, chapter five, he said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what we said last week is that any person who is born again by the Spirit of God, their righteousness is surpassing that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because it's not a righteousness that they earned. It's not something they got by jumping through hoops or just their outward conduct. It was given to them as a grace gift by faith as they trusted in the finished work of Christ. And that's the whole key to this new covenant living. God gives us this righteousness, not our own, but he also, by his spirit, comes inside of us, takes up residence in us, and begins to change us from the inside out. And that's the whole difference. And we're gonna see that over and over and over again in the coming weeks because Jesus puts the focus right where we need it to be, not just on outward conduct, but on inner character, and that's what he wants for every true disciple. Now, I, I just wanna pause here and take a little, a, a little moment to plug next week because it is such an important topic. Next week, are you ready for this? We're, we're gonna talk about adultery and lust and hell and gouging your eyes out. I mean, it, it, it's gonna be unbelievable. I'm calling the message sane sexuality. Wow, we need that in our world. I don't want you to miss it. And next week, we're gonna see that Jesus comes along and teaches, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And everybody's going, amen, Lord. Yeah, go get him, Jesus, because we believe in that. And then all of a sudden, he says, but I say to you, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've already done it. And then their jaws dropped. Now, if everybody were to die at that point that Jesus was talking to, who had ever had a lustful thought, everybody would have been dying in piles. Let me, let me contemporize this for us. If everybody listening to me right now in one of our locations online, if everybody were to die, I mean right now, who's ever had a lustful thought in their heart toward another person, I mean people would be dying in piles all around. There'd be piles of people just piled up, dying. Everybody, I mean everybody would be dying in piles. Now I'd go ahead and speak. How many of you believe that? I hope, I hope you don't, okay? But don't miss this next week. Sane sexuality 
It's a topic we can all identify with. It is so relevant to our lives. But after laying this foundation last week, see, Jesus begins to give a series of examples now of how radical this renovation of the soul really is. And today, he dives in by talking about an example that's just so relevant to our lives in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Well, of course they had heard that. I mean, my goodness, that is the sixth commandment after all. And they, most of them were illiterate. They could not read scripture, even if they had a copy of it for themselves. But what they had done is heard it. They had heard it. And that's why Jesus didn't say, you have read, because 98% of them had not read that. They had heard that. He said, you've heard that it was said. And indeed, that's the level of righteousness that the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, were shooting for. Don't take another person's life. It's a good law. Human life is sacred. Don't be capricious. Don't be flippant. Don't be nonchalant about its value. Good law. Jesus didn't come to do away with that law. But then he goes further in verse 22, and he says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, let's go beyond the action, murder. Let's go to the attitude of the heart, which is a sort of seething anger. The outward action is wrong, but it is fueled. It is generated. It comes from something that's going on deep inside of you. So let's talk about character. Once again, Jesus is drilling beneath the surface, going to the true intention behind the law. He says, look, you want to live a life of integrity as a disciple? Then we've got to look at what's going on beneath the surface. Don't even let anger smolder in your heart. Now, wow, that's relevant. I have read that 30% of all murders committed in America are people who are murdered by a close family member maybe a spouse, parent, child, sibling, an in-law, 30%. How can that be? It's because in the closeness of family relationships, anger is provoked and people don't know how to handle anger. By the way, in fact, you'll probably hear me say it numerous ways and numerous times a day, it would be a great, great gift from God, a great accomplishment if all of us could learn how to rightly deal with our anger and process it. Because if you're like me, you access anger very easily, just kind of the way many of us are wired. We, we can tend to get angry very easily. Now, I'm going to make a statement right now. I want to be sure you get, not all anger is wrong. Now, I point that out and I pause there because there's been a lot of bad teaching on this. Not all anger is wrong. In fact, 
God gets angry. The psalmist in Psalm 85 writes this. It's sort of like this prayer to God. It's a prayer for a renewal and awakening and revival. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. And then he asks this provocative question. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? So let's not sentimentalize. Let's not be nicer than God, okay? God has a capacity for anger, for wrath. In fact, that's, that's really what was happening on the cross. God was judging and pouring out holy wrath on the sin of humanity, and if you've read the Gospels carefully, you know that Jesus also demonstrated anger in the Gospels because of the dishonoring of the temple and the exploitation of worshipers there. So anger, hope we know this, in and of itself is not wrong. Anger is just an emotional response to various stimuli. It's what you do with that anger. Listen, it's what you do with that that makes it sinful or not. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, he says, in your anger, do not sin. So anger in and of itself is not sinful, but believe me, in most people, at most times, it quickly goes to sin because it's not handled wisely, properly. In fact, he goes on in that same passage to say, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, there is a way to appropriately, wisely, biblically, in a godly manner, deal with this anger so that it doesn't turn into sinful behavior. So it's possible, just making the point, it's possible to get angry without sinning. We ought to, in fact, let me push it a little further, we ought to have a sort of righteous anger about some of the horrible things that are going on in the world. If you don't get a little angry at some of the horrendous things happening in our world that are ungodly, I don't know where your soul is. You must be numb, you must be robotic. If that doesn't stir some sort of righteous anger in you. So Jesus is speaking. You say, well, well how can he say if you're angry with your brother, it's a problem. How can Jesus say that? He's talking there about a kind of smoldering anger, one that lingers on and on. In fact, most of the commentators that I consulted this week say it's really more of a mindset of revenge where you're harboring anger and you long to get even or do something to a person to make them pay. And that's the situation with so many humans. Muhammad Ali said that when he was a little boy, his parents got him a brand new bicycle. He was so excited. It was all shiny and new, and he rode that bike for a few days. But in just a few days, someone in his neighborhood, he thinks, stole it. And a policeman who was a friend of the family asked him what he was gonna do if he caught the boy who stole it. And Ali said, I don't know. So, the policeman took him down to the gym and began to teach him to box. And Ali said, to this day, 
To this day, I've never found the guy who stole my bike, but every time I got in the boxing ring, I looked across at my opponent and said to myself, that's the guy who stole my bike. (laughs) Pow, pow, pow. Anger, if not properly handled, I mean, it is dangerous. Have you found this to be true? It can devastate relationships. It can cause family members to live in terror. It can destroy friendships. It can negatively affect the workplace. Angry, an angry parent at a ball game can totally damage their witness for Jesus Christ. Angry church members can cause chaos in the local church. Anger is a problem if not properly handled. As Christians, we're supposed to think differently and act distinctively. In a survey that was taken some time ago of the American people, the question was asked, oh, I love this. If you could eliminate another person by simply pressing a button and suffer no negative consequences to yourself, would you do it? Now think about that for a moment. If you could eliminate somebody simply by pressing a button and there's no negative consequences to you, would you do it? Who are you thinking of at this moment? You got anybody in your mind you'd like to eliminate? Listen to this, this is shocking. 69% of all males said they would. 56% of all females, think about that. If you could eliminate somebody just by pressing a button, over two-thirds of all men, over half of all women said they'd do it. You don't know who you're sitting by today. I mean, my goodness, they might eliminate you if given the chance. Jesus says, look, the issue is not whether you'd actually stab a person in the back or put a bullet between their eyes. That isn't of itself the issue, although that is wrong. The problem is, what is fueling that desire? It's the anger, it's the smoldering resentment in the heart that is the real culprit, the real problem. By the way, whenever you're studying an issue, whatever the topic is, it's good sometimes to look at the law of first reference. You know what I mean by that? The law of first reference. Go to the Bible and see in the Bible, and it's not always in Genesis, by the way, but look at the first time that that topic or that issue arises. And in this case, it happens to be in the book of Genesis, chapter four, where we see the first murder ever committed in human history. And by the way, it is a premeditated, cold-blooded murder where Cain murders his brother Abel. What was behind that situation? Well, both brothers had offered sacrifices to God, and the scripture there says in Genesis 4 that God was pleased with Abel's offering and looked with favor on it and accepted Abel's offering, but he did not look with favor on Cain's offering. And then we read these words in Genesis 4, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So Cain responds in anger, and 
He acted on that and he, he handled it in the worst possible way. He devised a plan to get his brother alone, to lure him out into a field so he could kill him. But before he actually murdered his brother, watch this, this is amazing on God's part, God speaks and tries to intervene with Cain and he says this, why are you angry? By the way, that, that sounds like a therapist question, doesn't it? And it, it really is a pretty good one. Hey, can you share with me why you're feeling this? As far as you understand it, what's behind this anger? Have you ever tried to examine it? God is like putting his therapist hat on here with Cain. He says, why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, and now he gives a challenge, as any good therapist eventually will, he gives a challenge, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The problem is Cain did not master it. It mastered him, and he became the first murderer. It's as though God was trying <laughs> to get Cain to do what Jesus is trying to get us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. What is beneath this? What is causing this? And so Jesus today is not amending Moses in this passage. He's drilling beneath and trying to show what the intention was to begin with. And by the way, he's gonna do that time after time. We're gonna see it again next week. Don't commit adultery. Sometimes people don't get commit adultery because the person doesn't cooperate or because they think they can't get away with it or because they don't have the courage to proposition someone. And yet, their heart is just filled with lust. Jesus wants us to look at the heart what's on the inside. Pharisees, hey, as long as you don't slit someone's throat, as long as you don't literally do the act, hey, you're good to go. Jesus says that's not what God intended at all. That just creates a legalistic people who are just full of corruption on the inside but are ticking off all the right boxes on the outside. Friends, the gospel is about radical transformation. If you're listening to me today, wherever you are, whoever you are, if you think that what this is about is just getting a little moral upgrade in your life, you're completely missing the point. God is interested in transforming you and me from the inside out. He wants it to be an inside out kind of thing, and he wants to build in us a thirst for righteousness, where that no matter what our environment or our situation, we want to do the right thing. But Jesus goes on here. He goes beyond his talk about anger, and this whole section is really, I'm calling it fostering healthy relationships. He goes on here to talk about insults. Again, anyone who says to his brother, raka, and that word as I understand it, 
from the language experts. The meaning is as much in the way it was said as in anything. You kind of spat the word out with contempt. Raka. You're gonna be answerable to the Sanhedrin. The experts in the Semitic languages say that this was a word of contempt. It was basically like saying, you're a blockhead, you're a twit, you're an idiot. And he goes on, verse 22. But anyone who says, you fool, that's the word for moron in Greek, you empty-headed moron, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So, The first one is an insult of intelligence. The second one is more of an insult of the heart. It's calling into question the person's character. He goes on. Therefore, verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now let's pause there for a moment. Why does he have something against you? Doesn't tell us, does it? And I think that's intentional. It could be that he's wrong and he has something against you. It could be that you're wrong and that's why he has something against you. It could be both. But in a sense, it's irrelevant because the point here is, Jesus is saying, I want you to be a peace-loving people. I want you to deal with reconciliation. I want you to be kind and compassionate with each other. And so it doesn't really matter where the fault lies. I want you in your heart to be all about reconciliation. And then Jesus uses a bit of a hyperbole here. By the way, he does that often in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know what a hyperbole is? It's an exaggeration that's intentional in order to make a strong point. Next week, we're gonna see it where Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I hope you don't go maiming yourself next week. If your right hand causes you to sin, Jesus is gonna say next week, cut it off. I hope you don't dismember yourself. I hope you get that these are hyperboles, intentional exaggerations, not to weaken the point, but to strengthen the point. So if you take them literally, you're trivializing them. Jesus said it's more radical than gouging your eye out. I want you to do whatever it takes to deal with this issue. So he's used this hyperbole here. If you're offering your gift at the altar, he says leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. I was reading in David Garland's commentary uh, a great, great man, a prolific author. He guided my, my doctoral work in seminary. He was actually my academic advisor. And uh, he says, the assumption behind this teaching is that one approaches God through one's neighbor. And Jesus uses hyperbole to make that point. It would be inconceivable for Galileans, for example, to halt sacrificial proceedings that is in the temple in Jerusalem, to return to Galilee, which would be like a several days journey back, to search out the offended person and do whatever is necessary to bring about reconciliation, and then to return several days more journey 
back to the temple in Jerusalem and pick up the sacrifice where they had left off. Again, he's simply pointing out it's a hyperbole. Jesus is saying, do whatever you need to do to foster healthy and peaceable relationships. Do the radical work of reconciliation. Make it a priority in your life. Why are relationships so important? Can I tell you? It's because our relationships with one another have a radical and a vital bearing on our relationship with God. Can I share with you what I believe is one of the most in-your-face verses in all the Bible? Spoiler alert, if, if, you, if you're weak of heart this morning, you may wanna cover your eyes right now. This, this is in your face. 1 John chapter four. If anyone says, I love God, we got any people out there who say, I love God? I bet about 99.41% of you would say, I love God. Yet hates his brother. God's got a word for us. You're a liar. Just a nice fluffy little message for Sunday morning is all this is. What? God says you're a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen right there in front of you cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I even say it backwards. Wow. <laughs> that is a hard teaching. Jesus says, look, I, you go into worship and you know that there's smoldering anger in your heart against someone and you've done nothing about that to try to reconcile that situation. Listen, don't take communion. Listen, don't, don't go singing your Christian songs and acting like you're all into me. God says, look, when you really hate your brother and smoldering, smoldering anger in your heart, that's all a facade. It's all fake. Deal with your relational issues. Go and do whatever you need to do to address that individual and then wait on taking communion until you have that matter settled. You see, your effort to reconcile may not need to be elaborate. It may not need to be long conversation. It might be just a brief little chat it might be something as simple as a gracious handshake or a one-line apology or a, or a note trying to open the door of reconciliation. But in other situations where the hurt has gone much deeper and the pain runs very deep, it may involve sitting down and processing the situation together at length. The reconciliation effort should be commensurate with the offense. And folks, there isn't just one pat formula for this, so this requires a lot of wisdom in order to navigate these waters. But Paul, again, teaches in Ephesians chapter four, make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And again, Jesus goes on in this mode, and this is all about kind of fostering healthy relationships, not being difficult to get along with, not being a crotchety, demanding kind of person, not being a person that requires walking on eggshells around all the time. He goes on in verse 25. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you have paid the last pity. Don't, be a, don't have a litigious spirit. Don't try to make everybody pay. In recent years, this is an area where Christians seem to be really struggling. Settling out of court is often a much better option than going through the process of the legal system. Legal system is very expensive. It's incredibly time-consuming. But we're living in an age of litigation, and it is incredibly emotionally draining. Now, caveats. Granted, I understand that sometimes you have to go through the court process in order to vindicate your integrity. Or you may have to go through a court process in order to pay medical bills that need to be covered due to someone else's negligence. Or you may need to ensure that justice is done. And the only way you can really do that is an appropriate court proceeding. The list goes on. But there's a principle that I wish we could just emblazon across this whole teaching today, and it's found in Romans chapter 12. If there's one verse that I wish we could just have etched in our souls, it would be this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, do you see the disclaimers there? If it's possible. In other words, it's not always possible as far as it depends on you. In other words, some people don't wanna be reconciled. That's cool, that's on them. But if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now here's where I wish we had about five hours to unpack all of this a little more because here's what I've discovered. It's one thing to throw principles out like we've done today. It's a whole different thing to apply them in real life situations. Amen? Amen? And that's where it gets messy. And that's where, in my experience, so many of us make really poor choices or come to wrong conclusions. So without belaboring this, I don't have time. Let me just answer a couple of quick questions that are, that are often posed. Pastor, does this teaching mean I have to be everybody's best friend? Absolutely not. It's neither feasible nor wise. Hey, pastor, does this mean that people who've hurt me in my past, I've got to now trust them completely? Absolutely not. Forgiveness and trust are completely different issues. Oh, I wish we had five hours to unpack that one. Forgiveness and trust are completely different issues. Jesus is not asking us to become idiots. 
we're blithely pursuing peace. This is complex. But if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But pastor, does this mean that I gotta go back in my past and start looking people up and drive across the country in order to have a sit down with them? Not necessarily. In fact, probably not. You can't unscramble eggs. And often those kind of heroic efforts actually create more problems than they solve. But let me say it again. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And one of the greatest steps we could all take is just being kind. The servant of the Lord must be kind to everyone. Sometimes I hate that verse. But I swallow hard and I'm kind as God enables me to people, even when I wanna slap them. <laughs> I'm kind. So I wanna finish today with a true story that happened centuries ago in Dublin, in Ireland. The Butlers and the Fitzgeralds were really at war with each other. There was a bitter feud, and anger was smoldering, and they were battling, you see, to get the greatest position in Ireland at the time, which was the representative of the monarch of England to the Irish people. And after simmering anger, this disagreement broke out into a full-scale war between the two families. And the Fitzgeralds, over time, gained the upper hand in the fight, and the butlers actually ran for shelter inside the cathedral in what was called the chapter house. That was a meeting room inside the large cathedral of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. And the Fitzgeralds pursued them into there and asked the defeated butlers to come out. They were locked behind this heavy door in hiding, but the butlers refused. They thought that if they came out, they're gonna slaughter us in cold blood. But then genius happened. Gerald Fitzgerald, Gerald Fitzgerald did something radical and it has reverberated down through the centuries. Although victorious in battle, Gerald was about to take this incredible risk. He ordered that a hole be drilled inside the heavy door, a hole drilled through it. And he ordered that hole to be drilled big enough so he could put his arm through and he risked it being lopped off, which would be a fatal blow possibly in that day. He offered his hand in peace to the Butler family. And this act, was, this act of faith was really rewarded by the butler shaking hands through the door. Then the door was open, and there in the cathedral, the two families made peace. And centuries later, that door still stands in St. Patrick's Cathedral as a testimony to an act of grace. And it's called the Door of Reconciliation. So as we close today, I wonder, do you need to kind of drill a hole through the door 
proverbially speaking, and extend a hand, even though risky, to someone maybe who is at odds with you. Someone possibly who's hurt you. Take the risk, make the first move, cut the hole in the door, so to speak, and let it become a door of reconciliation. Father, this teaching, I mean, I don't know how anybody else feels, but this rocks me. This, this is one of those teachings that kind of shatters you to the bones. It kind of grabs your attention and won't let go. You've been so clear to us how important reconciliation is. So I ask that today, as your spirit does his work, that you would show us where we need to act to drill a sort of symbolic hole in the door, to reach a hand out, although risky, and to seek reconciliation. We know it's not always possible. You've made that clear. But help us to be the kind of people that as far as it depends on us, we live at peace with everyone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.